0: What's up, Tribe? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Superfeast. You guys know that I would never promote any product unless I've used it personally, and I truly believe in it. For 10 years, Superfeast has been Australia's premier provider of medicinal mushroom and adaptogen extracts. They only source the finest, most potent and robust herbs and mushrooms. Superfeast is the only choice for when you're looking to build energy in the body, cultivate robust immunity, and protect your family. I've been using Superfeast products for a number of months now. Uh, I've tried various mushroom extracts in the past, but the difference was noticeable almost immediately when I started using Superfeast products. Uh, from, you know, from the minute I got up in the morning to the time I go to bed at night, I've got energy on tap. In terms of sleep, I'm getting a full night's sleep, which was something that I've struggled with for years. I get to sleep very easy. Um, I think clearer. I don't suffer from uh, brain fog anymore. It's just, it's been absolutely incredible. So I encourage all of you, uh, head to superfeast.com.au and use the code word PRIMOD for 10% off your next purchase. There's never been a more important time to start looking after your own health. So superfeast.com.au, use the code PRIMOD and get 10% off your next purchase. My guest today is the great Dr. Peter McCullough. This is the second time that he's been on the podcast. He was on episode two back in August where he was uh, raising concerns around vaccine efficacy and safety. Uh, he put his career on the line. He was speaking out against the narrative and sharing what what, what he was seeing and giving his honest opinion on the situation. So I've got the utmost respect for this man. Um, he's just an incredible human being with great morals and values. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Podcasting. Podcasting from Sydney, Australia. This is the Prime Podcast.
1: Independent, unfiltered, and uncensored. Beginning in 3, three two, two, one. One.
0: Dr. McCullough, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to see you again. And thank you for agreeing to do this. I understand you've been a very busy man of late. Yes, I've been doing
1: critical care in my home. My wife's parents are here from Toronto, they're age 88 and 98. And it's so difficult because they've both taken the vaccines as they should uh, prior to leaving Canada. Um, But now we've just had a difficult situation with fever and um, a process called sepsis in a very elderly man uh, who may be uh, towards the end of life. And uh, it's incredibly challenging. I think the vaccine has made it more difficult to actually diagnostically uh, figure out what's going on, but we're doing the best we can.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. And hopefully I'll send my best wishes uh, to you. your father-in-law over there. And uh, you were on the, the podcast back in the beginning of August, we had a discussion and well, wow, it's incredible how things have changed and accelerated at such a rapid pace since then.
1: You know, I remember you pacing outside of your house. You were like a caged animal. You were pacing around outside and you were so frustrated with the direction things are going. And the uh, United States at that time, uh, we had just the first wave of what we call va- voluntary mandates for vaccination, even though, uh, you know, we're handling COVID-19 with early treatment. Uh, that the, the vaccines could have been mandated, uh, you know, six months ago if it was really uh, thought to be you know, COVID driven. Uh, but it was in the minds of people to mandate the vaccines against the will of the people. People haven't wanted to take vaccines for, for you know since April since the word got out on concerns on vaccine safety and now uh, on, on the loss of vaccine efficacy. But the mandates rolled in and we just now, in the last week or so have had a big pushback from the courts, uh, all the states and, and various jurisdictions. There's been a multitude of cases to say, listen, the, the, the mandates are not they're not legal. Uh, they're not medically indicated. Uh, the vaccines aren't uh, sufficient enough as research and, uh, test articles to uh, for an unwilling population. So I serve testimony as two of the two physicians cited in the sixth uh, 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 federal court uh, by Judge Dow, and we're both frequent contributors on Fox News, and have given our analyses throughout the pandemic. Uh, that I think are respected, uh, not only by the judges, but by the nation as a whole. And so those uh, mandates have been stayed. That means they've been temporarily delayed. And I anticipate this is all going to go to the Supreme Court. So my uh, testimony, again, will be relied upon at the Supreme Court. The Court doesn't allow any new arguments, uh, but they will look at all of the facts and all of the expert testimony given so far.
0: Well done. That's quite an accomplishment. It's something that it's a step in the right direction. I mean it, it's good news. I, it I think st- you yeah, go on? It's a,
1: state, it's a step for medical freedom. I mean people have basically lost sight of the fact that this is a, an injection uh, where um, one has to decide whether or not the injection goes in their body, and they can't receive any pressure or coercion or fear of reprisal or, or have any other consequences fall to them for either deciding to take a vaccine or not deciding to take a vaccine. We know that uh, there's freedom of individual choice. We have two analyses, one by Hoag and one by Kostov, showing taking the injection is more dangerous than taking one's chances with respiratory illness of COVID-19. In places like Australia, where COVID-19 is less prevalent in the United States, it's even a smarter decision to forego the vaccine and take your chances with COVID if, if you do come in contact with it.
0: Yeah, so look, um, as I said, I appreciate you coming on and it, it's a matter of urgency over here. The TGA has just approved the Pfizer vaccine for five to 11 year olds. I think the last time we spoke, the two that we were using was, was uh, Pfizer and AstraZeneca. But since then AstraZeneca seem to have just not, no one speaks about it anymore. The the, the government's not speaking about it. it. It's sort of Pfizer and Moderna, which are both obviously are mRNA uh, vaccines. So AstraZeneca seems to have been pushed to the side. Uh, why? I don't know. Uh, but um, so primarily we're talking about Pfizer and uh, Moderna, but the TJ has approved the Pfizer vaccine for five to eleven year olds, which um, I knew was coming, uh, because what I'll do, I'll I stay up to date with the the news from the CDC, uh, because when you know when the FDA approve a vaccine for an age group over there, I know for a fact that at some point it's going to happen here. They seem to sort of follow the TJ seem to follow uh, what goes on over there, so uh, I was aware of it happening and the potential of it happening, um, but I think now like when you when i've shared some data and statistics when you look at that um and i'm by no means a doctor but it you know you don't need to be a doctor to interpret some statistics and and sort of work out a a um, risk as opposed to the benefit of something and i I just we've had one child well we have a two we've had two children 10 years and under that have died Uh, with COVID-19 both of those children had very serious underlying health conditions so that's in the entire country there's only been two deaths and both of those children Um, as unfortunate as sad as it is obviously no one uh, it's it's never nice when a child or anyone dies Uh, but you know to use that which they have done to to sort of push this through um, it's illogical so I wanted to discuss that Um, And what you're saying, obviously, you're a a cardiologist and you have your own clinic over there in Texas. So it'd be good to speak to you about what you're seeing in that age group in regards to some potential complications.
1: Sure. Well, the first thing I'd say is age 5 to 11 was emergency use authorized approved here and the vaccine is Pfizer and the dose is 10 micrograms. So it's a third of the adult dose of a 30 microgram dose. So it's 10 for the small children age 5 to 11 at baseline, and then three weeks later. And what we know in a paper by Walther and colleagues New England Journal of Medicine, a two-to-one randomization, approximately 2,200 children, that there were less than two dozen cases of COVID-19. There were a few in the Pfizer uh, arm, and the rest were in the um, placebo arm. So there was over 90% vaccine efficacy, but uh, this was less than a common cold. It basically was a runny nose or some sniffles. There was no mention of spread, no serious illness in either group. And, um, you know, and importantly, about a third of the kids got pretty sick with the vaccines. They developed fever, body aches, muscle aches, uh, the constitutional symptoms. Uh, so there's no clinical benefit in that age group. And as you pointed out, when we look critically at it uh, in the United States, uh, we have about 600 deaths in children overall. I'd say, you know, all children under age 18. And we know there that last year, there was almost no influenza. It was all COVID-19. The year in the past, it was about 600 children a year die of influenza. So in a sense, it was a trade-off. And uh, there, as you pointed out, they have cystic fibrosis or diaphragmatic hernia, cartagenous syndrome, terminal cancer, other illnesses. Uh, And so sadly, there was only one child in the United States who died ostensibly with no other medical problems. And that child didn't receive adequate treatment. So if we just treat children with albuterol, inhalers, budesonide uh, with uh, oral azithromycin, prednisolone, some children weight-based aspirin. I've even advised on cases like this and were able to get children out of it in a day or two. I had a child in Canada where the family reached out to me desperately and and, uh, had only been given an albuterol nebulizer with a simple steroid nebulizer. This case of COVID-19 turned around quickly. There was no hospitalization. The parents were fine. And so even children with severe symptoms can be easily treated. I've seen children in the families and the adults where I've uh, been involved, I've been in the household, I've seen them, I've examined them. I'm telling you, COVID-19 in children age five to 11, I'm telling you as a senior doctor is not something to risk a vaccine on and certainly not something to risk a vaccine where there's been so many deaths, so much permanent disability, uh, and so many uh, urgent care hospitalizations and other problems. We, we don't have any safety data on how these vaccines will influence their growth and development, uh, whether or not long term uh, it'll it'll influence how they um, actually develop from a neurologic perspective. We now know the spike protein that's generated with the vaccines stays in the body for months, and that spike protein goes everywhere the vaccine goes. So it goes to the brain, the heart, the reproductive organs, and in children that uh, small, I can tell you everything we've learned about the spike protein is that it's very bad
0: for the human body. It's a, it's an exposure we'd never want our children to get. So it essentially, with COVID, a lot of the complications come from that same spike protein. Is that correct?
1: That's true. But with a respiratory illness, don't forget, the body fights it off in the nose and the mouth. The children that age have a very vigorous thymus gland, lymph nodes, and there's probably relatively little spike protein in the human body with the respiratory infection. We know that because the antibodies to the spike protein are so de minimis in the natural infection. In fact, the antibodies are much more to the nucleocapsid and 27 other proteins. With the vaccine, there's a limited antibody response only to the spike proteins. So only one out of 27 proteins does the vaccine give an antibody response, but it's sky high initially. And so we'd infer that the antigenic exposure to the spike protein in small children is much greater. And I can tell you as a clinician, it sounds dangerous to me, it sounds risky
0: so what are you seeing in your clinic obviously you you're, you're a cardiologist so you deal with a lot of obviously mm-hmm. the heart um, which is a major uh, talking point and something that i've been really paying attention to because we're seeing young healthy athletes all around the world just collapse uh we had an, an afl player i don't know if you know if that is uh, australian football it's a you know back in the aerial ping pong right uh we had a, a player uh collapse down in training and um, but that's just one case. I mean, there's been uh, hundreds of athletes around the world, just, you know, having heart attacks and, and collapsing in the middle of training or, or games, um, which I've never noticed. Obviously it would still happen, but not to the extent that it's, it's happening. I mean, sort of the past six to 12 months. So in your, primarily in children, five to 11, what are you seeing in regards to, uh, myocarditis and, and blood clots? in that age group?
1: Well, you know, we don't have much information on ages five to 11, but registrational trial by Walther was basically free of the major systemic issues of myocarditis or thrombosis. Uh, And we know from data from Finland a few years ago, I believe the first author is Tashopi, that demonstrated that the myocarditis does occur as a background uh, in children, but it's pretty rare under age five. It really picks up after puberty. So I don't think with the small children, based on what we know, we'll see flashes of myocarditis uh, in that age range. It's just that we know the vaccines don't last very long. It's about six months of uh, coverage and then it'll be another shot. And uh, you know, Dr. Rubin, who's the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and he was on the panel for uh, the ages five to 11 uh, FDA decision, uh, You know, he really said it all when he said, we will never know if these are safe unless we just try children. And I can tell you as a senior doctor, I'm senior to Dr. Rubin, I'm the editor of a major journal. You know, I have hundreds of patients, hundreds of papers in the National Library of Medicine. I've been on clinical trial steering committees, led clinical trials, published papers in the New England Journal of Medicine. I can tell you as a senior doctor and in a position of authority, that statement that he said that we're just gonna try it in children to see if it's safe, that statement will go down as the most uh, reprehensible a
0: reckless statement in all of human medicine. Yeah, I recall that uh, was being shared a while ago. I think I've seen it on Twitter. Someone shared that statement and I couldn't believe it. We're, we're, what he's essentially saying, we'll use them as 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 dummies just to see um how it plays out. But I mean there wasn't a great deal. So I, I came across an article uh, yesterday where I'll read it to you uh just to see if you can uh, shed some light. So uh, this was posted by The Age, which is an Australian um, publication. Oh, I think it's worldwide, actually, but this was the Australian um, edition. Uh, it said that uh, less than 1% of primary school children testing positive in New South Wales needed admission to hospital. So less than 1% of all cases in children required hospitalisation, which I think is pretty standard around the world. That's sort of a, a, a the average. Uh, where are we here? Um, and it says that serious side effects were very rare and none were detected in the trial. Uh, More than 5 million children have been given the vaccine in the U S since early November. And there have been no vaccine safety signal for myocarditis or pericarditis. Is that factual?
1: Well, in ages five to 11, I don't know, since that just uh, got started in the last few weeks, but ages 12 to 17, that's not the case. We have very good data from Tracy Hogan colleagues from the University of California, Davis where she evaluated the VARS and the VSAFE data, the thousands of cases of myocarditis. In fact, in the VAR system, as we speak right now, there's 13,000 cases of myocarditis, pericarditis, but in the Hogue paper that really centered on ages 12 to 17, she found that it was explosive in boys far more than girls. Uh, I think 80 to 90% are boys. Uh, right after the second shot, that 86% of the time, they required hospitalization. This was severe. We're talking about considerable heart muscle injury by EKG, by cardiac troponin assessment, and echocardiography means inpatient monitoring medicines to prevent heart failure in some cases, no physical activity for three to six months, which is very important. That really influences the adolescents. They cannot do this. This happened in thousands of cases. Hoag analyzed this and said that, listen, a boy is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis after one of the vaccines Ever be hospitalized with COVID 19 and the respiratory illness. It's a very bad trade off. And uh, you know, that's the reason why the US FDA has warnings of basically telling parents uh, advising against vaccination of, of children because of myocarditis with Pfizer and Moderna. Remember, ages 12 to 17, they get a full adult dose. They get 30 micrograms of Pfizer injection with uh, each one of the shots. and um, And there's no clinical benefit. And they paper by Frank and colleagues, again, another 2,200 patient trial, this time one-to-one randomization. Again, the, the vaccines pre- pre- prevented less than two dozen cases of the sniffles, no significant spread, no, um, no serious illness uh, in the placebo group. You'd much rather have your child honestly get a placebo and ride through COVID-19 to get natural immunity. Now in the United States, different than Australia, at the FDA meetings in September and October, there was a general talking point that through May we had 40% of children and already had COVID-19 in the United States. Now through the Delta outbreak, my estimate would be closer to 80% of children in the United States have already had COVID-19. So it's over with, they can't get it again. And so we know in that circumstance, there's no opportunity for benefit and there's only opportunity for harm. I presented at a conference recently with Scott Atlas in uh, Columbus, Ohio. He was on the White House task force and worked directly with the leaders there And he had data showing a school teacher in America, elementary and middle school levels, is the safest occupation in the country in terms of COVID-19. There hasn't been a credible case of student-to-teacher transmission, so the the teachers don't need to worry. In general, the infection is spread from parents to children in the home, and the children are not really the vector of considerable spread.
0: Yeah, well, they've mandated here in New South Wales, so teachers have to get the vaccine and just yesterday the teachers were out um, on a strike the first strike they've had in over 10 years um regards to pay and but also our uh, staff shortages so there's a huge amount of of staff this is not just teachers but across a lot of industries nursing i believe there's been over five thousand nurses that have been stood down uh, for their refusal to receive the vaccine in australia and it just seems like a very unusual move during a, a health pandemic that you would be prepared to stand down thousands of of nurses. Um, But they've done that. So they've they've gone across sort of industry by industry here and mandated it, uh, which, look, in my opinion, just to get the vaccine numbers uh, up. So, look, uh, what I'm very concerned about, I don't know what's happening over there in terms of uh, it being mandated for school children, but I have no doubt that very early next year, uh, we're going to see over here they're going to mandate it for school children, not only to go to school, but also uh, sport, children's sport uh, which is it's extremely concerning and as you said it's it's not just the short term but also the long-term safety we really don't know we have no idea well getting back, the, getting back to getting
1: back to the um, issue of sports you mentioned uh, the the montages of the sudden deaths on the field and uh, it does make me wonder what percent of the athletes took the vaccine and if they have subclinical myocarditis We know that cardiac death occurs in myocarditis with exertion. And so the the athletes are all screened away from common causes of sudden death with athletics nowadays. And that's called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or thickness of the heart. They're screened out. The athletes, these these high-level athletes, believe me, this is a big, big uh, financial industry. They are not going to allow someone with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to get on the field and take that liability. So we know the athletes are closely screened they have cardiac tests before they ever get on these teams, and they're good to go. And to see such large number, we're approaching 200 sudden deaths, which is unprecedented, makes me uh, really suspicious about the impact of the vaccines. Now, I commented on this uh, with Rob Mitchell on Newsmax before the Olympics, and we had data with the Olympians that about 80% took the vaccines uh, of different types, you know, anything from Sputnik to Sinovac to, to, to Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, J&J. And I commented to Rob that the vaccines are not a single thing. The vaccines are all different. They all have different efficacy. And he asked me, uh, you know, what, what, what do you think about that? I said, listen, about 80% those who decided not to take it, it's primarily because they didn't want the complications or the side effects. Some swimmers uh, decided to do that. That's fine. It makes sense. They wouldn't want to have a complication from the vaccine before uh, sports. But importantly, the public health issue was for the older Japanese. At that time, the Japanese had relatively low prevalence of COVID-19, big elderly susceptible population. And he said, do you think it's reasonable that they keep the uh, people out of the stands? I said, yes, because it's a big congregate setting. We don't worry about spread outside, but inside and particularly public restrooms, when things are close, I worry about spread. And I think the Japanese made the right move. We didn't have a big outbreak. After the Olympics, uh, there weren't any uh, problems. Uh, but now with these, uh, these other high-exertion sports, high-dollar sports, uh, it makes me wonder how many are having some subclinical or even mild clinical symptoms. But they're, in a sense, suppressing it because they know if they say they've got some chest pain and they're diagnosed with myocarditis, they, that season is over with. And mm. so uh, it's very interesting. Now in the United States in sports, we've had some interesting examples. We had Aaron Rodgers, who's a very good quarterback for the uh, Green Bay Packers. He didn't take the vaccine. He COVID-19. He got multi-drug treatment just as I drew it up for America, my key publications. He basically got the McCullough Protocol, was over it in two or three days, finished his quarantine, didn't spread it to anybody. Ben Roethlisberger, quarterback for the Steelers, he was vaccinated, fully vaccinated, uh, was proud of it, made a podcast with uh, Mike Patrick on this. Sure enough, got COVID-19. It was a spreading event with his father to him or vice versa. And he was a mess. And you know, he got through it. And then recently fully vaccinated LeBron James, basketball player, got it. So we're going to see player after player get COVID-19. The only thing that matters is who's COVID recovered, because mm-hmm. those, those people can't get COVID-19 a second time. Same thing in the military. What really matters is who's had it, because then you're no longer uh, susceptible. So I think we're going to see more and more examples of this. I hope that there's a attention turned towards vaccine safety. Um, everybody needs to make a free choice on these vaccines. Uh, You know, we've never protested the meningococcal vaccine or hepatitis B vaccine. I've personally taken all the vaccines. I've never seen a protest. I've never felt uncomfortable about it because they were safe. This is the first generation of vaccines that are clearly not safe enough uh, for broad use. And they're certainly not um, uh, safe enough or well-tested enough to ever mandate on a population.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. You mentioned the McCullough protocol. And I remember we we discussed that when you're on the show the first time back mm-hmm. like in August. And, yeah. Then uh, Joe Rogan got COVID. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And he overcame it. He was advising people on uh, what he did and what he talked. And he posted a video on Instagram about it. Oh, this is say he's taking credit. <laughs> that's a, that's the McCullough protocol. Well, it,
1: it's so funny. You mentioned that first thing tomorrow morning, I'm going to get a car and I'm actually driving down to Austin. And I'm going on Joe Rogan show tomorrow afternoon. Oh, well. So I'll have- I'll have a chance to review it with them. Uh, you know, he's a, a pretty big uh, media personality in the United States, and yeah. uh, I'm interested to see what his uh, viewpoints on it. I'm glad that you know he's a big guy. Uh, COVID-19 could have been a, a very serious illness. He got over it in three days. That's just how I drew it up for the world. And if Australia would follow the McCullough Protocol, which is now copyrighted, I didn't do it, but uh, Ben Marble of one of the big uh, medicine services said, Dr. McCullough, you need credit for this innovation. Uh, you know, it's tried and true. The drugs work in a sequence combination. We don't have to have these hospitalizations. And as Australians can really let down all this uh, concern, uh, they don't need to be in lockdown, they can return to their normal economies in Australia and just treat the acutely sick people when they come up, because the vaccines certainly don't stop COVID-19 well enough to, to rely upon.
0: Yeah, that's um, that, that big news going on the Joe Rogan podcast He's a massive name. And um, oh, I've, been li- I've been listening to him for for many years, and he's such oh, an insightful good. he's such an insightful guy. He's he's very intelligent, and you see that we, the, the the people he speaks to from all walks of life, and he speaks to look well, that's why he, he he treated COVID the way that he did. I um, mean, he was successful. In fact, um, he had um, Doctor Gupta on from I think it's CNN, which was really interesting. Did you hear that?
1: Yeah, I saw it, and you know, Sanjay Gupta had basically parroted um, statements from the FDA and the American Medical Association that, that, quote, there was no supportive information for ivermectin, and that, quote, it was a horse dewormer, yeah. end quote. And both of those statements couldn't be farther from the truth. We have over 60 supportive studies, over 30 randomized trials, uh, big effect sizes, meaning big reductions in mortality, both early and late, um, very safe. Uh, it's one of the most safe, widely used drugs in the world. We use it for strong avoides. I use it in scabies. I've used it in my practice, my whole career as a medical doctor. You know, our Department of Health and Human Services uses it routinely in Afghan refugees who come to the United States because they have parasitic infections. So we know it's safe. We have no problems using it. It is a veterinary product and it comes in different formulations for animals, but uh, it's equally safe in animals. So uh, ivermectin, Uh, is a frontline therapy, it's relied upon. It's not the only thing we use to COVID-19. It's not necessary nor sufficient to treat, but it's quite valuable. Thomas Barodi, leading Australian scientist, uh, is one of the ones who helped bring that innovation forward. You know, it's first line in Japan, that's close to Australia. Japan's got uh, every bit as sophisticated medical system as Australia and the United States. They use ivermectin. It basically helped crush the curve in Mexico City, multiple states in India. Uh, So ivermectin is a great drug, hydroxychloroquine, the monoclonal antibodies, I've had a great experience with them, steroids, anticoagulants, it's a matter of putting it together. You know, treating COVID-19 is one of the most rewarding illnesses to treat because we take a patient who is at high risk with a near fatal illness, and we can turn it around in a matter of days. You know, one of the biggest updates we have is called oral nasal virucidal therapy. And I want all the Australians to know about this. Now, with the Delta variant, it multiplies at such a high number in the nose and the mouth that we have an opportunity to actually reduce the viral load with using uh, betadine, very dilute, uh, less than 1% dilution, or um, uh, hydrogen peroxide with some Lugol's iodine in it. And basically, all we need to do is squirt it up the nose with a syringe or a spray, sniff it back to the point where it's in the back of the throat, spit it out. That basically decontaminates the nose, gargle with it in the mouth, And after going out in congregate settings to come back and do that, that's the best way to prevent COVID-19. And once in its onset, I have patients right now with acute COVID-19. I'm following this chowdery protocol that was uh, originated in Bangladesh earlier this year. And it's enormously effective in making it a milder syndrome. Australians can have either betadine, which is palpidone iodine, or having hydrogen peroxide with Lugoyle's iodine at home. Have it in a home treatment kit no doctor needed. Australians can protect themselves against COVID-19. Days you go outside the house and you come back, just do a spray, wash, clear it out, and you're good. If you don't leave the house that day, no reason to, to do it. So this is good hygiene. I teach all of my patients this. I am so happy. Uh, Dr. Chowdhury in um, Bangladesh gets a ton of credit. Uh, in fact, Bangladesh, 160 million people have recently announced, announced zero COVID because they have used the oral nasal because the Delta variant is about 251 to a thousand times higher viral load. So it's replicated so fast, it can actually be easily killed in the nose.
0: Yeah. i I read that a while ago. Um, I think you put it on, it was telegram. I'd like to think it was telegram, your telegram chat with the better Dean better done better And I think nearly everyone has a little Brown bottle of that somewhere in their, in their home. So that's um, incredibly important information. Have you done any, any tests and sort of, have you got a, in terms of, of reducing, uh, even catching COVID, have you got a figure there that, have you going to trial with it? Yeah, the belief is there's a review by
1: uh, Chopra and colleagues uh, clearly showing across a whole variety of preclinical studies, it basically kills the virus on contact with at a variety of concentrations. So uh, in the United States, we would use uh, one or two teaspoons of palvidone iodine, which is 10% uh, solution, betadine, with six ounces of water. It's like a small juice glass of water. Uh, And you use it to gargle, spit it out. You have to gargle about 30 seconds in the mouth. And then that spray up the nose and back. Some people do it in the shower because it's brown. And they afterwards just shower off uh, the face and mouth. Uh, It's good hygiene. It actually works for sinusitis. You know, ear, nose, and throat doctors and dentists have been doing this for sinusitis for years. One of the handouts we have says, listen, do this for bacterial sinusitis. And it works uh, just fine. Um, But yes, it's clearly preventive. Uh, it probably is preventive to the tune of about 85% preventive. And then in the Chowdhury paper, it was extraordinary that it, by day three, it had massively reduced the PCR positive group. In the treatment group, I'll, the um, an original group was 303 in the treatment group with PCR positive. I want to say it knocked it down to a couple dozen with, um, with, within three days. And so it's incredibly useful. Uh, it reduces hospitalization, need for oxygen or the ventilator dramatically. And so um, I think everybody in Australia, since since Australians um, have been uh, re- really kind of resilient uh, or resistant to early treatment protocols, uh, it's much more for the individuals in Australia to take matters in their own hands. So
0: that's my yeah. that's my feeling. There isn't much of a of a treatment plan here at all. I think when we spoke the first time, nothing's changed. It's uh, preventative measure in terms of get vaccinated. Um, and if you were to call you, if you're vaccinated and you get COVID, you call your doctor and say, listen, I've got COVID. Oh, that's okay. Just isolate for two weeks and um, go to the hospital if it gets worse. That, that That's it. And then they put you on a, a ventilator and, and that sort of thing. So they haven't really changed at all since the beginning, really, since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but there is so much more information out there, but it's almost like they're just not willing to even acknowledge it Exists and in fact, if you speak about it, as you know very well, they'll remove your posts and claim it's misinformation. Um, so it's very problematic. But I, quickly, just back to the, the five to eleven year olds with COVID itself. So a lot of discussions about long COVID. Um, you know, they might not have uh, many issues. It may not uh, they might not require hospitalization immediately, but there is a risk of of long COVID. Uh, what, what can you say about long COVID? And is it really much of an issue with children, adolescents?
1: No, long COVID is primarily uh, occurring in patients sick enough to be hospitalized adults. And it's a product of prolonged untreated periods. So the people being hospitalized are the ones, uh, sadly, that don't seek out early treatment. And it's really available in the United States. We have four national telemedicine services, 15 regional Services hundreds of doctors who treat patients every day. So, we have really gotten on the early treatment program in the United States, but sadly, some people still don't seek out early treatment or they think they have a mild case and then get behind on it and they're hospitalized. So, people are sick enough to be in the hospital in the ICU on a ventilator, 50% will come out and have long COVID syndrome. And what this is is persistence of the spike protein in the human body. July 29th, Bruce Patterson published uh, a paper demonstrated in people sick enough at that level that uh, the S1 segment, the outer segment of the spike protein is retrievable in human CD16 positive monocytes up to 15 months after the infection. So it takes a long time to clear out. I interviewed Bruce on the McCullough Report on America Loud Talk Radio. And I said, do you have any data in vaccinated individuals? He goes, yes. He goes, we are finding the protein in vaccinated people, actually both the S1 and the S2 segment. Now, recently, there is a paper confirming that it's recoverable at least for as long as we have observed people after the vaccines for many months. And, and Dr. Patterson anticipates probably just as long as a respiratory infection. So um, we know that spike protein accumulation and persistence is the issue. I asked him, I said, is there any other illness where the organism is in the body or parts of it is in the body for that long a period of time? He goes, yes. And the answer is Lyme disease. So the remnants of Borrelia burgdorferi, the, um, the uh, organism that causes Lyme disease are in the body for months or even a year or more after Lyme disease. So that's what this story with COVID-19, so long COVID uh, uh, long-haul syndrome. Uh, There are no randomized trials or treatment protocols that are based on signals of benefit right now, but there's some suggestions. Your viewers can go to the frontline critical care consortium, flcc.net, and then download the iRecover trial and it features uh, some drugs or some supplements that can be used. In general, it's a mild syndrome. It's just bothersome because it takes a while to clear up. I've had good luck with uh, a line of nutraceutical supplements called Healthy Cell, particularly the Focus in Memory, as well as the REM sleep supplement. Um, And and as a fair disclosure, they are sponsors of America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, but I've personally used them. I've had good luck. Those are in a gel pack. Uh, There's some thought that long-haul syndrome... Is, is either a byproduct or a concomitant with the micronutrient deficiencies. And then beyond that, I personally, depends on the diagnosis. If it's a thrombotic event, I end up using uh, anticoagulants. If it's a pleural, card, pleural pericardial, a chest syndrome, I end up using colchicine and some prednisone, primarily a neurologic syndrome. Uh, let's say like incessant tinnitus and hearing loss, I'll use a combination of uh, prednisone, a steroid plus Uh, a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor called fluvoxamine. Fluvoxamine is supported in three acute COVID-19 trials, may have some uh, effect against the spike protein in the organism. So uh, my go-to drugs are colchicine, prednisone, fluvoxamine for these different syndromes, anticoagulants when they're needed. But I'm open to vitamins and supplements and I'm open to the iRecover protocol. There are Australians with long-haul syndrome because they're not treated. And so we know that early treatment reduces that viral phase from 14 days to four days. And that's going to be the best hope in shutting
0: down the risk of, um, of long haul syndrome. Yeah, it's um, it just their reluctance to even acknowledge this, this treatment, which is going it, to, it's going to, um, it already has, but I can imagine in the future, uh, you know, the next 12 months and longer, that these people are going to have persisting issues and, and symptoms that they really shouldn't have. Um, which is very unfortunate, uh, but look, the good thing is that the information's out there. Uh, people like yourself have put these things out, and we obviously with the McCullough protocol, it's out there, available. The only issue will be here is actually obtaining certain things uh, because it's, it's not easy here. Doctors are uh, if you are if you go up to a doctor and ask for ivermectin, you might as well be uh, you might as well be asking them for an it's opioid. They're very yeah, reluctant. But I want
1: Australians to know it can be treated without ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. Those are the hot buttons. So the Australian protocol could be very similar to the Chetty protocol in South Africa. So that would mean basically upfront using cyproheptadine, Montelukas, so working against uh, the uh, histamine release and uh, immediate uh, inflammation, um, using famotidine, which is over-the-counter in the United States, to reduce viral replication through the Tempris-2 receptor. And then into uh, inhaled steroids, oral steroids, colchicine, and if needed, anticoagulants. And the Chetty protocol is, is more than enough to take an edge off the syndrome for Australians. So Australians are not, uh, are not locked into this idea of you know dependent on ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. So I want the Australians to know they can get early treatment. This takes a lot of anxiety out of things. No need to lock down. No need to, um, uh, to get terribly concerned. High-risk people should get early treatment. I don't want to see anybody in Australia over 50 with medical problems and certainly people over 65, period, to go without treatment. Families ought to jump in, make sure they have these drugs. And I'll summarize them again. The -the over-the-counter drugs are uh, povidone iodine liquid or hydrogen peroxide for nose and mouth washing, oral aspirin, 325 milligrams or more, uh, oral famotidine or pepcid, have this on hand. And then be ready for prescriptions from the doctor for uh, inhaled budesonide, oral prednisone, uh, hydrocortisone, or dexamethasone, and then oral colchicine, and if needed, um, injectable low molecular heparin or oral novel anticoagulants. Doctors can do this. Australian doctors can do this without the fear of reprisal and get their patients safely through the illness. That's the reason why I devised the McCullough Protocol.
0: It is flexible and works across all countries in the world. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, one question I get asked, especially when I announce that um, you're coming back on the show, the amount of messages I get saying, ask Dr. McCullough what he thinks about Novavax. Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts on Novavax?
1: I'm still very high on Novavax. Novavax is uh, five micrograms of the spike protein configured to generate immunity against the spike uh, protein itself. So it gets that library of antibodies and um, it's in a matrix. And it's injected in the deltoid. And in the registrational trials, it was every bit as good uh, as Pfizer and Moderna. It may be better because it may give a, a broader immunity against the spike protein. We'll see against the variants. Now, the arm was sore. It was actually more, a, a more sore arm than Pfizer Moderna or AstraZeneca or J&J. But the idea is no systemic effects. We don't have any genetic uh, manipulation of somatic cells. We should not have you know, pericytes in the heart, picking up genetic material, it's not going to happen. It's just a matter of the body handling the spike protein. This would be similar to a tetanus shot in people, a tetanus toxoid. Um, You know, again, that's a toxoid, but a limited amount. So I'm very high on it. It's very close to approval. Um, I still think limited. It'd be seniors, those in nursing home residents, nursing home workers, the elderly, you know, young people like yourself uh, don't need a vaccine. Someone at my age, you know, it would be discretionary. Personally, I'm strong enough and fit enough. I, could, you know, survive COVID nineteen, no problem. So I, you know, I probably wouldn't take it. But um, you know, maybe a senior, maybe my elderly um, uh, uh, in-laws downstairs uh, uh, struggling, um, they would, and yeah. and I'd be fine with that. So I, I want to give Australians a, a pretty positive view on the Novavax. What we see so far.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, Australians are, are uh, asking about it because I think a lot of people are at the point where it's becoming very difficult to get by without being vaccinated. So they're, they're you know, mm-hmm. if, if it comes to it um, and they have to get a vaccine, um, then they're obviously exploring their options to what's available because it's, it's very tough. I mean, um, I think the last time we spoke, I'd lost my job um, due to not receiving the vaccine. Oh. And I've been, I've been, when I spoke to you, I was locked down. I'm still locked down. So, um, but well, your beard, your beard, your, be- your beard's a little shorter. You look a little meaner. Oh yeah. I've been really working right
1: on now. that. I, I, I I think it's a time to, uh, to really show some backbone. Like we're staying true to this science. People in my circles, we're on national TV almost every night now. Um, our opinions are relied upon. You know, one of the reasons why our opinions are relied upon is because we just review the data. We're now uh, giving public programs. We go into U.S. major cities. We'll have a program for lawmakers, then a program for doctors, and then move into big public programs. You know, we're attracting 500 to 5,000 people per program. I've got one in Phoenix right now. They've got a venue that holds 48,000. I'm a headliner. And, you know, I'm not a rock star. Uh, You know, I'm past my prime. All I have is some data on COVID-19. But people want to come, and they want to learn about how to navigate through the pandemic.
0: You you know what? You you are in in certain circles, you're definitely a rock star. The amount of love that I get when I, when I, I'll say, oh, I've got my color come back on again, mate. It's unbelievable. The messages blow up and people line up and they you know, message me. And um, it's great though, because it, it's because you look, you were the first one. I think when we did this podcast, the first one um, at the time, I think you were really the first doctor to speak out about it on an Australian program. There wasn't, there may have been some, but I certainly didn't hear about them. So it was such a big thing. And I mean, it's got hundreds of thousands of streams and downloads and a lot of people messaged me and had nothing but positive things to say about the, the show and how insightful you were. And it gave everyone sort of uh, hope that there is, you know. There-
1: well, this will end. And I think my message, we can finish on this, is a hopeful message. The hope is basically just staying true to the data, understand this is treatable. Natural immunity is robust, complete and durable. We're going to get through it. Every day we can have more and more courage, overcome our fear. Just get back to our rational uh, 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 moorings that we have, our fundamental uh, uh, bioethical moorings, and, and mornings and we'll get through it. You're right. I was on um, uh, on uh, Asia Pacific. I was on the uh, the outsiders, and uh, you know Australia's. We have. You're probably half my emails are from Australia. We have a lot of pathos for the Australians. Uh, many Americans. You know, I'm an Irish American. You got plenty of. Irish Australians, mm. uh, and you know I've been there myself, it's a great place. I wanna come back to Surfer's Paradise and, and have a great time in Australia. So we want Australians to get through it. America is with you on this, follow America's lead. You know We've mm. kind of taken these vaccine mandates too far. Our courts have overturned it. Doctors are treating COVID-19. We're making great progress, public programs now. The, um, the public enthusiasm for early treatment and then having the freedom of choice on a vaccine is, is is insatiable at this point in time. That's what Americans want. That's what Australians want. They want early treatment, get through the illness, and they
0: want the freedom to choose about what happens to their body. Absolutely. Dr. McCullough, before you go, Omicron, need for concern or probably a blessing in disguise?
1: Well, Omicron is not a transformer. So I can tell you, every little kid out there thinks it's uh, related to... Uh, uh, you know, the next uh, transformer. In fact, on the McCullough report today, I picked the the uh, the image actually of a transformer, one of the meaner ones. But Omicron turns out the most highly mutated form of the virus described on the border between Botswana and a neighboring country in fully vaccinated, by the way. So it was discovered in yeah. fully vaccinated uh, that were carrying it. They weren't even symptomatic. The symptomatic cases are described so far, multiple centers in South Africa as being mild, no respiratory symptoms, no one on the ventilator yet that we have heard about. Uh, There are over 30 mutations in the spike protein, over two dozen that are novel mutations, not uh, in the other prior variants, Um, about 10 peppered in the receptor binding domain of S1. And uh, and there are three uh, deletions, one insertion. They must be influencing greatly the binding capability of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 to the the ACE2 receptor. That's one of the reasons why it's probably mild. This is great news. The initial uh, studies based on modeling by Dr. Fantini out of France indicates it's less transmissible than Delta. Delta's number came in with Fantini's estimates at around 10. The um, original Wuhan came in at around 2 and that, uh, that Omicron is coming in at about four. So with Delta at 10 and Omicron at four, it's going to be unlikely that Omicron is going to overtake Delta. I told Americans on national TV uh, last week that I thought it looked like an evolutionary uh, mistake. There's been some analyses out this week suggesting maybe it actually picked up some recombination with some similar viruses in the coronavirus family. It almost looks like an evolutionary fluke. It will uh, work out its own ecological niche, just like uh, LaDA, uh, that ADA and Lambda and these other variants have. Um, but there's no signs that it's going to take over the world at this point. And it's probably far too premature for vaccine manufacturers to announce that mm. they're embarking on brand new vaccine manufacturing programs because of a couple cases in uh, South Africa. Now they have spread over the world. Uh, because people carry it on the planes, by the way, it don't spread on the plane, but they carry it asymptomatically. And then when they become symptomatic, that's when it's spread. And we have um, a, a pretty solid information so far that it's it's holding out. Remember that treatment is really what determines who has a, an, an easy case and who has a hard case. So it's hard to say uh, Omicron is more or less virulent, uh, but we'll just have to follow the data here. But what we're hearing is pretty encouraging. At this point in time, if this happens, honestly, if Omicron uh, took over Delta and, and everything we know, as we see here today, this could be the end of the pandemic. This could be the best news ever. Finish out with a very mild kind of viral-like syndrome for a day or two. So yeah, we'll have to see. I don't think that's going to happen. Listen, I don't think it's going to happen. Delta has been very hard to treat. I've been battling the Delta uh, outbreak now for six months. Patients every day in my practice, it's hard. Delta is hard. It reproduces at such a high level it's so contagious. I can't wait for this Delta peak to be over with. But it's not. You know, in the United States, we had the Delta outbreak. It, it started to come down, but we didn't finish it off strong like the uh, group in Mexico City did or the Indians. And so now we've got a high plateau shelf. So we still have a lot in the United States. United States, despite all of our research and all of our innovation, we have the most cases per million individuals, and we have the most deaths per million individuals. Sad to say. Yeah.
0: It is sad to say, but it's good to say some places Florida is doing quite well. I understand. And Texas has been doing well for Mm -hmm. quite a while Mm -hmm. now. So it it is positive. And I think Florida and Texas, you weren't really too big on mask mandates and that sort of thing.
1: Never locked down, never locked down. I ran errands today. Um, uh, I went out and went to a bank. Uh, One person who's actually a patient of mine works in the bank. She has some medical problems. She was wearing a mask. The girl at the front desk wasn't wearing a mask. Uh, Restaurants, Grocery stores, uh, no masks. Um, In the hospital, we wear masks, but we wear them anyway because I'm a cardiologist in the cath lab. Surgeons wear them, dentists wear them. So I'm not against masks, but I think high exposure people, doctors, dentists, maybe hairdressers, uh, these types of people are fine. Uh, You know, your day-to-day excursions, masks, masks still make uh, an impact. I think the high-risk places are closed spaces with low airflow, like elevators, public restrooms, other tight spaces where other people could be, where there's high volumes. I think those are the risks. Looks like no risks outside, by the way. We have our football stadiums wide open, people sitting shoulder to shoulder, no masks, and there have been no outbreaks from our major sports stadiums now. So I think we're really good on sports. But again, sports, the only risk is at halftime, when you go down to
0: go to the restroom, or the concessions, and you get close. So it's fresh air is what really keeps everybody healthy. Absolutely. Dr. McCullough, listen, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. I look forward to hearing you on the Joe Rogan podcast tomorrow. I'll be watching that, definitely. Okay, I'll be ready. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Thank you.